0: In terms of watching what's going on in the world, uh, I have a comment to make about some things that are currently happening or appear to be happening or about to happen. <coughs> there are several financial analysts in the, uh, not the mainstream media, but alternative news, who have made some pretty strong statements here in the last week or ten days. Uh, And even I've noticed in the mainstream news, even on Google, as liberal as they are, uh, they're beginning to mention that there are countries around the world that are beginning to uh, go into recession and to begin to have financial problems, and their their money is inflating at a terrible rate, Uh, and that means that there's trouble coming. Now, we look at it, perhaps naively, and think, well, the dollar is stronger It's strong against all these currencies that are dropping in value against the dollar. Well, what effect does that have? I mean, it sounds good to say that, the dollar's strong. But the effect that it has around the world is that most debt is in American dollars. These countries have had to, for instance, buy oil in American dollars up until just recently and most of them still do so the debts that they owe are in american dollars and if suddenly their money goes to half the value then they have to come up with twice as much of their money to pay their debt not only that as interest rates grow up go up uh, then they have to pay far more interest on in that debt so it puts them in a position where they can't pay it's just like what about your bank account you got $100 in there, and tomorrow it's only worth $50. What does that do to your bill paying? <laughs> uh, but that's what they're facing in those countries. Uh, there's a fellow in uh, Switzerland who is has got his pulse on the economic situation pretty good. He heads up a big company there that deals mostly in precious metals, but he keeps... Uh, an eye on everything going on. His name is Egon von Greert or van Grierts, I guess would be maybe the way you would say it. But he wrote an article this last week that started out with, "This is it. It's here. No more delay." He says the crash is coming this fall. He just before up until now he's always said it soon. It won't be long. Uh, things are getting bad. Comments like that. But in this article, he said, this is it. It will be here this fall. So he's—he's he's either knows pretty well what's happening or he's going on out a limb uh, to make a statement like that. And usually financial people don't do that. Uh, they'll hedge their bets a little bit uh, rather than making a plain, open statement such as that. And then uh, another article that was sent to me is by michael snyder. i I read him pretty often on Steve Quail. But he had a chart there showing how different currencies around the world have gone down against the dollar in this just this year. And the percentages were right around fifty percent on several nations. And Venezuela was 99.9% at, at the top. That it's, its currency is virtually worthless. Well, what about all those banks that hold notes against people, companies, and the Venezuelan government? Uh, their money is worthless. It's it's like you 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 take uh, Monopoly money into your bank here in Hurricane and try to deposit it. And they say, it's worthless. We don't want it. Why would we have your monopoly money? So when they start getting ready to pay their debts to Americans, we say, well, give me a trillion for this $10 debt, you know, whatever. Uh, And some big countries are having their uh, currency fall in the 10 to 20, 30 percent bracket based on that chart and India was one of them Pakistan and of course Venezuela Argentina and uh, the tea, um, uh, Turkey Turkey's devalued against the dollar 48% in the last year so they have trouble paying their NATO fees and what they owe Americans uh, so he said the collapse has already started was was the way he put it. He says it's not something that's coming, it's here. And it's happening around the world. They've been talking about the pigs in uh, Europe for a long time. Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, and... um, What's the S? Spain. (coughs) Have been in serious trouble for a long time. But he said Europe is in just as serious and worse condition than those nations now. And he says, the worst nation, the biggest problems on earth is, guess where? The United States. We have far more debt in terms of trillions of dollars and other types of debt, a quadrillion and a half or so, in debts. And we can't long survive. So he says, it's starting, the dominoes have started falling in some of these other nations against the dollar, but then they won't be able to pay their debts to us, and then it's going to hit us. So he's talking as if it's in progress. And we know from the book of Revelation, it's going to. when it does come, it's going to come very, very quickly. And Zephaniah calls it a crash. So I don't know whether these guys are right or not, but I thought I would mention it uh, so that we keep in mind... Uh, what's going on. And that's, that's on top of all of our political intrigue and chicanery in this country. Uh, they're trying to sort out right now who wrote that op-ed uh, article in the New York Times about how terrible things are in the White House, and that's, that's on the news all over the place right now. And this morning, Google said that they've got it narrowed down to four or five people. But I read Dave Hodges quite a bit on the Common Sense Show, and he had an article this morning and says that it's the vice president who wrote it. And then he gave a lot of information to indicate uh, proof of that. He says he may not have actually sat at the computer and typed it out himself, but he's the one that behind it and caused it to happen. He might not have wanted it traced to his computer, but he said when you look at it, uh, he's the Lyndon Bean Johnson... uh, to, to, Ted, to uh, Jack Kennedy he's there ready to take over wants to take over already has plans to run in 2020 didn't even give Trump 8 years as his vice president but uh, already has things in place to run for the presidency in 2020 and uh, he made some pretty bold statements in there that Pence would like to see Trump assassinated and uh, give some reasoning for it and it makes a certain amount of sense but uh, Pence, as we've known for a long time from other sources, is a globalist. He's part of the New World Order. So, of course, he wants to get rid of Trump. So, just things like that that add up. Anyway, we're, we're facing a, a very tumultuous time here leading up to the midterm elections. And I think things are going to get decidedly worse between now and then. So, we'll see where it all goes. In the meantime, let's all go to Romans 6. Our word, or our minds need to be focused on spirituality and righteousness uh, above all these other things that are going on. I mention them in passing because we are to keep watch and pay attention to what's going on. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, our spiritual condition is what is the most important. Now, going back to verse 21 of chapter 5, He's been talking about the law and about the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And he makes this comment at the end, that is, sin has reigned to death, up until Christ came, sin, the transgression of the law, reigned because there was no way to get out of the death penalty for sin. So death was... The king, it was in charge, or reigned is the word he uses, like it was the royalty, uh, had the final say, in other words. The king has the final say. So, sin produces death, and death had the final say. Then you have Christ who comes along, and he says, As sin has reigned to death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life, by Emmanuel, our Lord. So he says, instead of death being the final verdict, now we have a different outcome, that we can have eternal life through the grace, the forgiveness, and the righteousness of Christ. So, he's indicating that sin no longer rules over us. Now we have pardon. Now what does he say then? Because this really answers the question of, of the, that they have about law and grace. Which is it? And really, it boils down to law and grace. Not one or the other, but both working in tandem as we shall see. So he says, since sin and death reigned, now we have Christ to forgive sin. So now, do we have to worry about sin? Or do we have to worry about keeping the commandments? He poses a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since we don't have to worry about the death penalty anymore, why don't we just keep sinning? If we're under grace, it won't matter if we sin because will be saved anyway. Once saved, always saved. He says, no. God forbid. God forbid that we should continue in sin. Well, what is sin again? Sin is a transgression of the law, First John 3, 4. Defined very succinctly there. So, we are not to continue breaking the law. Well, does it not follow then, if we are not to break it, God forbids such a thing, does that mean it's still in effect? I would say so. If God forbids that we sin, then, and sin is the transgression of the law, then the ball must still be there for a purpose. It's not gone. It's not done away with. We're not to continue in sin. He goes on. How shall we that are dead to sin, live any longer therein. See, sin died, the penalty of sin died, through Christ's forgiveness, grace, and mercy. But that doesn't mean you ought to still live in sin. No, you have to get away from it. It's it's still there. Paul himself wrote, But he had better be careful lest after he had tasted the grace of Christ he become a castaway. Castaway for what? Hair was too long? You know, he didn't go to the barber this week? No. Castaway because of sin. Cast where? Into the lake of fire. That's the only place you get cast. Cast away from the kingdom is to the lake of fire. So he says, I have to be careful lest the penalty of sin come back on me, is what he was saying. Know you not, verse 3, that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel, were baptized into His death. That shows the symbolism of baptism there. You go under the water, and if you stay there... You drown. You die. If by grace of the person doing the baptism, they bring you up out of the water, you get to breathe and live. Better hope the preacher likes you. (laughs) You know? We're baptized into His death. Baptism does not symbolize life. It symbolizes death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now, he was literally dead and buried. And baptism is only a symbol of dying. You don't actually die because you have to come up out of there and live. But he literally died. And he says that, that symbolism is what counts. Baptism represents nothing but death. Christ could do nothing after he died. He laid there in the tomb for 72 hours and did nothing. Never had a thought. Never had a pulse. Nothing. Inert. Dead. So, when we are baptized, that represents that we are dead. Not alive anymore. What did you do when you were alive, before you were baptized? You sinned. That's why you have to have this symbolic death with Christ so that you're dead to whatever in this life you did wrong you're dead to sin we're buried by, with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life whatever you were Prior to baptism should die there it should not continue anymore dead is dead It, it isn't life it's gone so therefore we are to walk in newness of life a different way of acting of thinking everything we do is to be different than it was before now that's partially why I emphasized over the last couple of weeks. Do we forget about the past? You know, when you when you die, your past goes with you, doesn't it? I, you can have a fairly common expression. Well, not to speak bad about the dead. People use that a lot. Maybe they're talking about so Uncle John that died, and oh, was he something else? So what they would have said about him while he's still alive they sort of tempered a little bit and say well I guess I shouldn't speak evil of the dead and the reason is that person is alive is is dead now and is no longer responsible for whatever it was that he did it's over and done what good does it go do to go exhume his sins now now the same applies to us when we go into the watery grave. It is a symbol of death. So anything that happened prior to your baptism is dead. gone. exists no more. So we should not speak evil of the dead either, should we? Even though we still be alive, we should not speak evil of each other because God has given us a new life, a new lease on life, And the past is dead and gone. To be forgotten. Even Solomon says, when you die, you know nothing. And he tells us that the past is gone. It's dead. Forget it. Okay. Even so, we should also walk in newness of life. Now there instead of being physically dead, indicates that you came up out of the water, and he gives you a new life. A new lease on life. A new life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So, baptism's death, uh, laying on of hands represents the beginning of a new life or a resurrection to life. Actually, just coming up out of the water indicates that there's still life there. You didn't drown. You're still alive. But on a spiritual sense, it's a new life. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Whatever body of sin you had... Uh, We talk about someone's body of work if they're, let's say, a writer. Your body of sin is gone. But it goes beyond that. The body that did the sinning is also symbolically dead. Doesn't exist anymore. Buried in the water. Now do you get an even clearer picture of why we should not sit around and worry about our past? or anybody else's past. Doesn't matter. All washed away. Not only that, but it doesn't stop at baptism. Christ's sacrifice is a continuing sacrifice so that we can still go before Him at any time of night or day, 24, 7, 365 and a quarter, and ask that His sacrifice, His death, be applied in place of whatever sin we may have committed. So, not only was your past life washed out at baptism, it's also washed out every morning or every night when you ask God to forgive you for whatever you did wrong that day. So, that body of sin dies with Christ's death, which is an everlasting, eternal sacrifice. It's applied daily. So you can't worry about what you did yesterday and nobody else can worry about what you did yesterday. That might be a good one to use in court sometime. You know? Oh, you're accusing me of something I did 40 years ago? A week ago? Hey, right here in Romans 6 it says that's all done away with. It's gone. Are you a Christian? Oh, you are? Okay. Well, then, quit bringing sin up. Forget it. You know, if, we would, if everyone who claims to be a Christian would live by that one thing, how much better life would be? If nobody brought up each other's sins? Now, if you've got a fault, and you do something, and we remind each other, well, you know, that's not really what you ought to be currently doing, or whatever. Uh, Iron sharpens iron, so that doesn't mean that we don't consider things. But we do not dwell on the past. We just don't go there because it's under Christ's blood. I've said it various ways over the years and over the last few weeks. But it's, it's something that we deal with day in and day out. Everyone, well, I won't say everyone, but most of the epistles that Paul wrote... Remind them not to gossip, not to backbite, uh, to be careful with their tongue. James does the same thing. Peter does the same thing. On and on, all through the Bible, it recurs. It's repeated over and over because it is a repetitive problem. It's human. And are we to walk in the flesh, in the humanity, in humanness? No, we're to walk in the Spirit. We'll probably get that here in a little bit if I get that far. Okay. We'll rise in the likeness of His resurrection. When you come out of the water, you live again. But He'll explain what type of life it is to be now. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. So it wiped out your sins, and by the fact that you live again, see, Christ's life is not sinful. He hasn't sinned before, during, his humanness, or since. The only sin he answered for was yours and mine. And... Since his is a continuing sacrifice, then we're not supposed to sin that grace may abound. God forbid. We should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Once you die, and we stick you up here in the hole in the ground, you don't sin anymore, do you? You're all done. You don't sin in deed, you don't sin in thought. You don't have any deed and you don't have any thought. Your works are done, your life is done, you're inert, your spirit goes back to God who gave it and sitting there uh, in the book of life. So we're free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. You don't quit when you're baptized. That is only a beginning, a new beginning, a fresh beginning. That which is past is gone. Now we have a new life. And we believe that we shall live with Him. That's why he says to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Walk as He walked, do as He did. He kept the commandments, Matthew nineteen seventeen, and if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. It's real simple. He will not give us the gift of eternal life if we turn our back on His law. That's what Paul meant. If I turn my back on the law, then Christ will not apply His sacrifice on my behalf, and I'll have to die for it. So it's imperative and important that we do not continue living in sin because you're dead to it. Symbolically, it it went away when you died. Knowing that Christ, uh, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no dominion over Him. As soon as He was resurrected, death was finished. It didn't have any more dominion. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So, one time we die for sin. One time Christ died for sin. Now, he doesn't die daily for sin. He just did that once. Now, Paul said, I die daily. Here's our problem. Our sin was washed away, we're not supposed to sin anymore, we're supposed to keep the law. But we make mistakes, and we goof, and we're weak, and we're this and that, and we still sin. Now that creates a problem. And if we don't have His forgiveness, we'll die for that. And we live to God. God likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive unto God through Emmanuel our lord so we we escaped on a spiritual level physical death spiritual death we got people here on the earth who are dying by the millions every day i don't mean by plague i mean just when there's 7 billion A lot of people's number comes up every day. Millions of them die natural causes. Now, on a spiritual level, our number eventually would come up and we would have to die for our sins because that's the penalty of sin. All right, we have somebody who mediated for us. He died for our sin. And now we're alive through him. Now, there's a reason for eternal gratefulness and thankfulness, isn't it? is that we get to live because of Him. So then he says, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof." Now, lust and covetousness are tied together. It's basically the same thing. Covetousness is the tenth commandment. And it's not a physical sin. It's a mental one. You don't covet with your finger. It's a mental process. And you're not to obey the lusts of the body. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. There again, sin is a transgression of the law. And if you break the law, you're allowing sin to reign. Now, he said it doesn't reign over you anymore like it did. Now Christ reigns in you, and he's alive. So why do you mess around with allowing sin to reign over you. Doesn't make any sense at all. Accept his sacrifice and don't live that way anymore. Walk in newness of life. How does he walk? If we're to be like him, he never sins. He never sins at all. And therefore, we're not to either. Because he is our perfect example that we are to follow. I was having a discussion recently with someone, and well, we don't. the The law isn't really in effect. We're above it, or we're living in grace. And I said, "Yeah, nine out of the ten commandments, you agree with. You don't really think you ought to kill your neighbor. You don't really think you ought to commit adultery." You don't really think you ought to steal. You really ought to think that everybody ought to put God ahead of everything else. I says, but you've got a problem. You don't like the Sabbath. It's the test commandment. Always has been. Well, God did rest after He did that, but that doesn't mean we ought to. Just human human thinking, you know. How messed up people get. I think God had Paul... He chose Paul to write some of the things Paul wrote so they could be taken and snared and deceived. They get into Romans and Galatians, and that's exactly what happens. Now, Christ did that Himself, so He wasn't telling Paul, I want you to be dishonest and lie to these people, was He? Christ said, I speak in parables so they can't understand, and they will be taken and deceived and snared. Now, Paul wrote that way for the exact same reason. It's in places, it's legalese, it's lawyerese, that's hard to understand. Peter said, Hey, I'm a fisherman, I don't get it. What's he saying? Well, Peter was converted, he had God's Holy Spirit, yet he had st- he's still kind of grappled with some things Paul has to say. But, the whole world is concluded in unbelief so that they cannot die for what they're doing now. Physically, but not eternally. They're nearly all going to die physically, but not eternally. They'll get saved in the long run. Romans eleven twenty six: All Israel shall be saved, and most Gentiles. So, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It's not your master anymore that's what he says that you should obey it in the lust thereof who is your master the one you obey so if you obey sin sin is your master and that master if you let it reign over you will kill you so he says don't do that do not sin isn't that just a different way of saying keep the commandments don't sin do keep Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we're living a whole new way of thinking and, and acting. Acting like God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now there's one they'll grab and read it by itself, out of context, and say, we're not under the law, we're under grace. But if you read this in context, he's telling you that, yes, you have unmerited pardon through Christ and righteousness and hope of eternal life, but that doesn't mean that you break the law. You're under grace, under pardon, only because of Christ's death and resurrection. But if you continue in sin... You're going to have to die for it. Yes, we're under grace. Not under the penalty of the law. But they don't put the penalty of in there. But that's what the Greek says. If there's no penalty of the law, what does under the law mean? If there's no penalty, why bother to keep the law? That's what it's all about. It's the penalty. Right? If they have out here on the highway, we suggest you do 65. The 10 suggestions people call it. But there's no penalty if you don't. Now, what does that tell me? Tells me I can drive just as fast as I want to, and they're not going to find me. It's not going to be a big deal. They may wag their finger at me and say you shouldn't do that, but there's a penalty of the law. And that's what matters. What then? He asks it again. Shall we sin? We're under grace, not under the law. Okay, does that okay sin? The breaking of the law? That's what sin is. Because we are not under the law, but under grace... God forbid, says it the second time in the same chapter. First verse and the 15th verse. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. So it makes it very clear there, whichever way you go, you obey Righteousness, or you obey sin, and you will reap the effect of either one of those. One is eternal death, the other is eternal life. Quite simple. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed, obeyed what? From the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Now the doctrine includes the law, and you obey. Obedience is always the key. Who do you obey? The law, or do you obey your flesh? There again, if there's no penalty, what hurt does it? What does it hurt to obey? Disobey? Nothing. But he's saying there's still a there is still a penalty for disobedience. So don't sin unless you have to uh, pay for non obedience. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. You were living this way of life and you were serving sin. Now you symbolically died. You had God's spirit through the laying on of hands and now you should be walking in the spirit not in sin you don't continue to sin you walk a different way a different path of obedience obedience to what? the law that's the only thing there is to either obey or disobey isn't there? what else is there to obey or disobey? the law But God be thanked, you were the servants of sin, but have obeyed from the heart the doctrines you've been taught. One of them was the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is so simple. We are to do as Christ did. What did He do? Not just at creation He rested. He went to the synagogue. He kept the Sabbath every week. So it doesn't matter How you interpret something Paul wrote, you just go back to what did Jesus do? He kept the Sabbath. He says, I'm to do everything he did walk as he walked, think as he thought. So it's real simple. He says, Well, you don't have to keep the feast either. I said, Well, what did Christ do on the last great day of the feast? He was in the temple and he was preaching. That doesn't mean you're all supposed to preach. Uh, I mean, that's a bigger subject than that. but uh, he's, Paul even says the women aren't too. And then other places it says only the men who are ordained to do so should. So we won't get into all of that. But the, the point is, just do what Christ did. He kept the Sabbath and the feasts. He kept the law. And he said, if you'll enter into life, you keep the law. It's really quite simple. If you just always, if anybody gets in here or in Galatians and starts arguing with you, just go back and say, what did Jesus do? Aren't we to do as he did? Well, yeah. You got them. They they won't do it, but you got them. They can't answer it. Now he says, verse 19, uh, after saying, we are now servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. He says, I'm going to talk to you like people here because you're infirm. Uh, Infirm means sick. Uh, your, Your flesh is sick. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. So he's making a comparison of your past life and your current life. And what's the difference in the two? The breaking of the law. In your past life, you broke the law. Now, walking in righteousness, you don't break the law. Still there, still in effect. And you receive grace that you do not deserve. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. (laughs) You you, you weren't righteous, you were free from that. Because you were serving sin. So righteousness didn't dwell in you. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You sin, and sooner or later you're going to die. Being now, but now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, a servant of God is what? Free from sin. Now, what he's saying? Free from uh, breaking the law, because that's what sin is. You don't sin anymore. You don't break the law anymore. So you're free from sin and become servants to God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end that of that is everlasting life. Not sinning, obeying God, will lead to holiness. And that's what holiness is, is lack of sin. And then he states very clearly in verse 23... For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? When you work, they pay you for that work, and that's your wages. Now, if you sin, the wages you collect are death. It's that simple. But the gift... Not something you earn through works, but the gift of God is eternal life through Emmanuel, our Lord. So he says, don't sin anymore, but whatever sin you have, uh, unless it comes under the grace and mercy of God, is going to kill you. That's the wages of sin. Let's go on to chapter 7. Chapter 6 and 7 have quite a bit to say that debunk what those who say grace only uh, reason. He says, Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. Now, the Jews had known the law all their lives, and the Gentiles had just learned the law. How that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Commit murder and they send you in on a life sentence. That penalty's there for as long as you live. And then he uses marriage as an example. For the woman which has an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. It's a law that's there that is to be followed unless he dies. And then it doesn't apply anymore. Right? Loose from that law. So then while her husband lives, she's married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no... Adulteress, though she be married to another man. Alright, why is there no sin there anymore? Because he died. And sin doesn't exist in death. So, once you are parted by death, till death do us part, we say, uh, then you're free to marry. And no sin is involved. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit to God. So he's using marriage here to say you're married in this physical life and Christ died and that frees you on a spiritual level from serving another mate. Therefore, you can look forward to marrying Christ. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work sin in our members to bring forth fruit to death. But now we're delivered from the law, that being, and again we could say the penalty of the law... That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We're to live in what? The spirit of the law. Does that, that means then that it's still there. If I'm to keep it in spirit, then I'm keeping it. Right? Now you go back to Matthew, where they try to say he did away with the law, fulfilling it, did away with it. No, he fulfilled it. He lived it. He filled it full. He lived it. And he told us in there, I'm not doing away with it. You kept it in the letter before. Now you've got to keep it in the Spirit. You're not only not to covet someone's property. I mean, not not to steal their property. You're not even supposed to think about stealing it keep it in the mind the spirit not just physically in the Old Testament you could think about sin all day long and you did not die for it as long as you didn't do it now they stoned people for adultery they stoned them for fornication but you could think it all day long and not get stoned What's that old song from when I was a kid? Brother, you don't go to jail for what you're thinking. Oh, the song was standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. And then he says, Brother, you don't go to jail for what you're thinking. Now, there's a lot said in that song. He could stand there and lust all day long, and nobody knew it, and they wouldn't put him in jail. Now, if he was a pedophile and he did something about it, uh, or, you know, whatever, some kind of crime, then he would go to jail. That was before we got liberal, but you know what I mean. So he raised the level there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to don't even think about it. And that's the way we are to be. We're not to walk in the, we're walking the newness of the Spirit, the Spirit of the law. you judge by the Spirit, the thought, now, not just the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I had somebody try to tell me not too long ago that you need to get as far from that law as you can because it's an evil, dirty, nasty thing that will kill you. So you got to get away from the law. Just have grace. And then he started eating pigs and all kinds of stuff that he had never done before. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it bad, really? Do you need to get away from it? No, it's what defines sin. God forbid, says it the third time. No, I had not known sin, but by the law, because the law is what defines it for i had not known lust except the law had said you shall not covet i could i was free to think anything i wanted to about anything my neighbor had land house car wife didn't matter unless the law said don't do that and in that sense the spirit of the law was in effect even in the old testament because covetousness is not a physical act It is a mental process. So it was there, even though you didn't get stoned for coveting, I guess. Because nobody knew it was going on. So it's not like the spirit of the law is a brand new thought. It had been there, it just hadn't been enforced. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, Sin is linked with the commandment. And he says we shouldn't continue to sin. Worked in me all manner of lust and covetousness. For without the law, sin was dead. I I had no penalty, no problem, if there's no law. That's why man has hundreds of thousands of laws on the books in the Library of Congress. Because it doesn't matter what it is, if there's no law against it, it's okay. Therefore, they write, letter, they write laws all the time. Why? Because they didn't like what somebody was doing, so they'll make it illegal. I use an example of uh, something I heard many, many years ago. There's a law, or was, maybe still there, on the books in Detroit, Michigan that you cannot have a hippopotamus in your hotel room. Why is there a law against that? Obviously somebody did it, and obviously somebody didn't like it. Who had to clean the room? She didn't like it. And the hotel management didn't like it. You know what they did? They complained. And somebody said, we can't do anything, that's not against the law. but we'll make a law and then they can't do that anymore. Oh, okay, now everybody goes home happy except the hippopotamus owner. That's one example out of hundreds and hundreds of thousands in this nation. So the law defines what's good and what's evil. And tells you what you can and cannot do. The law told him what he shouldn't do. For without the law, sin was dead. Didn't count. Verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So it's saying, I I could be out there living without the law, doing anything I wanted to, but then when Christ pointed out to me out there in the desert and said, Paul, the commandment's still in effect. You're not supposed to sin. Oh... Sin revived, and I died. I had to quit doing that. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be to death. Now, the law is a positive thing. I had somebody years ago try to convince me that the law of God is a negative thing. Because it says, Thou shalt not, so many times. No, no. It is a negative statement in that sense. Thou shalt not. But the effect of not is positive. The effect of me not killing George is a positive. I'm told don't kill him. Okay? Okay, so I won't. I might otherwise, but... (laughs) I'm just joking, you know that. But that's the reasoning. So, that's a, to him, he, that's a positive law, isn't it? George says there's a law that says you can't do that. That's positive. It's not negative. It may maybe have a knot in there, but it's, the effect is positive all the way through. So, the law was ordained to give life. I'm not going to kill you, so you can live. But I found it to be to death. Why? because I was disobeying it. And when it said, you shall not, I said, I shall. And therefore it was killing me. For sin taking occasion by the commandment. It's like sin is personified here. Sin said, ah, the commandment says don't do this. And you did it anyway. Gotcha. Going to kill you. It deceived me, and by it slew me. Now, you you can kill somebody a whole lot easier if you convince them that you're not going to kill them. If they're not worried about dying, they're a lot easier to kill. Now, if they're warned ahead of time, and you're told, so-and-so's going to come kill you, he'll be bringing a gun, he's going to come kill you, You get worried about that. So you get your own gun out and say, come on in. Now, if you don't know it, and I've seen this in movies before, and they they use it a lot of times with Mexican-American movies, where they make the Mexicans to look like the bad guys always, you know. John Wayne's not the bad guy, it's, it's the Mexican. Now, I'm not using this as an example to say Mexicans are bad. Because they're not. But the way they portray it in the movies is this Mexican, he'll talk to you about how you're my amigo, my friend. Uh, everything's going to be alright. He's telling him, don't be nervous. Don't draw your gun. And then he, he quits suddenly being nice and just pulls the trigger. Because you're totally disarmed mentally and emotionally. And you don't think he's going to kill you because he's talking so nice. Now, I doubt if that portrays real life much, but that's the way the American movie industry portrayed it a lot of times. So if somebody's off guard, they're a whole lot easier to kill. Why are they keeping Americans off guard? They're planning on killing over 90% of us. That's what the New World Order plans to do. But they're trying to feed us sports and movies and entertainment And keep our minds off of what they're actually doing so that it'll come as a great surprise to most Americans when they start getting killed because they've been disarmed. They've been taught that everything's going to be okay. You know what the government does? It gives people money so that they get tied to the government and they're dependent on the government. And therefore, they're not going to fight against the government when the government wants to do them harm. I just read, guess what is the most bought, if you want to call it a food, on welfare money. The most commonly purchased product. Anybody have a guess that had not read that? Soda. The commonest thing that is bought with welfare money. Now, that's designed for life, right? That's good for you. In people who are not on felt welfare, it's the second most purchased item. In other words, soda pop is what Americans buy more than anything else. Wow. That's sort of beside the point. But the thing is, we think that the law is there to hurt us because it's written in a negative way. No, it's there to help us. It's there to give us a good life. So he says it's ordained to life. The commandment was ordained to life. Does that make it a bad thing? No, I want to live. I don't want to die. I found to be unto death because it took advantage of me. I broke it, and then it would kill me. Verse 12. And I've never heard a Protestant... I don't think I've ever heard a Protestant quote. Verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. (coughs) That's a pretty strong superlative there. The law is a wonderful thing, is what he's saying. Well, he just said here that it's me, But he's saying it's wonderful, because if I keep it, then I will be given grace and mercy and forgiveness and have life so that which was supposed to give me life killed me because I broke it now if I keep it I can live therefore it's holy and just and good and wonderful it's not negative was then that which is good made death he says the law is good just holy just and good But I had somebody arguing up and down that it was a miserable, wretched, lousy, horrible, bad thing that you needed to get as far from as you could. Now, is that what Paul means? (coughs) You better read the whole context, because that isn't what he's saying. "...was then that which is good," the law, the commandments are good, "...made death to me, God forbid." It wasn't the law that was made death to him. What made death to him? Wasn't the law, but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good. So he says the law which is good was causing me death because I was breaking it. Isn't that simple? That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So it wasn't the commandment that was bad, it was the sin, the breaking of the commandment that was bad. Then, now notice what he says again about the law. This is, oh, this is such beautiful writing in here that you can use on any Protestant. For we know that the law is spiritual, not bad. It's spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. He's saying then that the law is not the problem. If something is spiritual, that doesn't make it bad. If something is spiritual, it makes it good. So he says it isn't the law that's the problem. It's holy and just and good, and it can lead to life. But I'm the problem. I'm carnal, that is, human, fleshly. Carne in Spanish means meat. I'm just human meat. Sold under sin. We are deceitful and desperately wicked. Our sins separate us from God. So it isn't the law that's the problem, it's us. And then he explains that. For that which I do, I allow Not. I know it's against what? The rules? The commandments. And I know better than that. I don't allow that. In my mind, sin is not allowed. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, should not, don't want to do, I consent to the law that it is good. It wasn't the law that was bad, it was me. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm human, I tend to sin, as a human I want to sin, I like to sin. And then, first thing you know, it's living in me, it's dwelling in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That's another good statement to use when people say, Well, human nature is a mixture of good and evil. No, it's not. In him dwelled no good thing. There's nothing good about any of us by nature. That's why he says that... uh, that the human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. It's not a mixture of good and evil. It's desperately wicked. And here Paul puts it a little different. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Nothing good. Now you see people... The reason I think there's some confusion there is because most people would recognize that human nature is not good all the way through. Because they see all these problems around So they can't say that human nature is completely good. But then they do see some things that people do that are good things. So they think that the nature is good. No, it isn't the nature that is good. It's the training and teaching that has been good. Does a kid, by nature, do good? No, they pull hair and scream and lay on the floor and pitch a hissy fit they're selfish to the core that's my toy not your toy and I believe yours is mine too you know we take it another step that is the nature of human beings it shows real quickly soon as they're born I'm cold it's not comfortable here What's this breathing thing I'm having to do? (laughs) Mew! They are selfish to the core. They're spoiled when they're born. We say we spoil our kids. No, we further spoil them. We make them even worse by giving them what they want, and they learn that screaming gets them what they want. So we train them to scream when they want something, by giving it to them. And we just make them, we, we exacerbate their selfishness. We train them to be that way, if we're not careful. Now, if a parent's doing their job, they will begin to teach that kid that your natural way is the wrong way. Your natural way is to grab that toy from your little sister and smack her when you do it. Now, give it back to her, tell her you're sorry, and don't do that again, or I'm going to paddle your fanny. One warning, just one. Now, if you give them 16 warnings, you're training them to wait till number 15 and you waste an awful lot of time, energy, and emotion. No. After the first warning, whack. Oh, they mean it. Wow. I'm being trained to do it the first time I'm told. The light comes off if you're consistent with it. No. There's no good thing in human nature. But if that kid has been trained to be generous and to give and not to take away, then with some people that takes. Some people never get over being a wretched jerk. Some people learn to do good because that's what they're taught. So we see them doing good and then we think that's their nature. No, it's not their nature. It's their training. Their nature is to be bad. That's what Paul says. In my flesh, there is nothing good. Christ even said that. Of myself, I can do nothing. Of myself, I'm no good. If he had given in to his human nature, he would have been evil. Because he had the same nature we do. He was tempted in every point, just like we are. But he had the Holy Spirit from the beginning and God the Father's guidance and help and strength. And he went to him for it. Constantly as an adult. And that kept him from giving in to his nature. Was the training throughout eternity past with his father and that spirit in him. I, we don't think of it in those terms perhaps a lot of times. But Christ by nature was just as evil as you are. Do we grasp that? That nature was human nature. And he was tempted to do everything that we're tempted to do. That means that's the way the human mind works. It is carnal, sold under sin. And if he was not carnal and sold under sin by nature, then he is in no place to be our Savior. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about Christ. He never sinned. He never gave in to it. I have the utmost adoration and respect for Him. Because He was fighting the same thing I am, and I've given in way, way too much over my life from babyhood on, and He never gave in once. So He is to be adored and worshipped. So I'm not speaking against Him. I'm just telling you that we're on the same, he was on the same playing field we're on. And only by the help of the Spirit of the Father in heaven was he able to control his nature. I tip my hat, I bend my knees to him. (coughs) Because Paul was just like him. In his flesh dwelt no good thing. What would you and I be like, brethren, if we never told ourselves no? Any thought that came to our mind, we said yes and did it. What would we be like? Oh my. We've got a whole generation now being told, whatever you want to do, just do it. And wh- where, where is society headed? Look at the fruits of not resisting. Got a whole generation of them out there now. I mean, they've been told to some degree to resist, but not much anymore. And society is coming apart very, very rapidly because human nature is to do evil. Those things which hurt other people. So, where was I here? I know that in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh dwells no good thing For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Now there's a verse that we can all relate to. I want to do good, uh, turn around and, oh man, did I say that? Did I think that? Yeah. How to perform that which is good, I have trouble with that one. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So, he says, it's my nature. It is the sin that has gotten hold of me, that is me. And it leads me to do what I shouldn't do. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. We we are always at a crossroads. We we are never away from a crossroads. There is always good and evil for us to make a choice in. Every thought, every deed, every action, we have to choose correctly. And there is a law in our members, and that law is that we're human. We're carnal. We are evil by nature. And therefore, if we did not force ourselves and resist ourselves, we would always go the wrong way. Because that's what we want. Unless taught differently. But he had been taught correctly, right? He knew the law of God. He knew the way of God. He knew what righteousness was. But he still had a problem with it because sin dwelt in him. Verse 22. Now here's, here's another one you need to read to the Protestants. For I delight in the law of God. It's a wonderful, just, good, holy thing. I delight in it. After the inward man, the Spirit of God in me causes me to delight in the law. But I see another law warring in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. I delight in God's law philosophically. I know it's right. I know it's good. I know it'll lead to peace and happiness and joy. But boy, my nature is not that way. So then he says, verse 24, O wretched man that I am. Now here was an apostle who had been trained for three and a half years directly by Christ Emmanuel himself in the desert. He knew everything that there is to know about goodness and holiness and godliness and righteousness. He'd been taught it all. And he said, I'm still a wretched man. <laughs> There's nothing good about me. Who shall deliver me from the, this body of sin and death? Or the body of this death? I, at my best, have no good thing in me and I'm wretched. I thank God through Christ Emmanuel so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with flesh the law of sin there is this war going on inside the war war of the spirit of God and the war of human nature at its finest and that at its finest is wretchedness (laughs) that's the best it gets Well, we're out of time, so let's stop there. But chapter 7 has an awful lot of good meat in it for anybody who's trying to argue that the law is bad and wretched and good and you shouldn't follow and it's done away with. So keep 7 in mind when they argue something else.